forward for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with Pentecost Sunday and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, how does Pentecost Sunday fit into the Christian calendar? Pentecost Sunday is a very vital part of a Christian calendar. This year it falls on 28th of May. Uh, Easter Sunday was on 9th of April this year, so we're approaching the 50th day or seven weeks after Easter. Seven times seven, um, 49 days, then plus one makes it 50. That is after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Pentecost is derived from the Greek Pentecostos, meaning 50th. Pentecost in the English Dictionary of Theology identifies that. Pentecost commemorates the coming of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended on Ascension Day, he instructed his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they should receive power from on high. And as a group of 120 or so were praying in the upper room in Jerusalem, 50 days after his death on the Old Testament Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon him with the sound of a great wind and tongues of fire, which we read in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat in each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this tremendous manifestation of divine power marked the beginning of the church, 3,000 were converted that day from the open-air preaching of the Apostle Peter and the personal evangelism of the rest of the apostles. And as a day of joy, the day itself has been traditionally observed by feasting, and it's been a favorite occasion for administering baptism. The Anglican Church called it Whit Sunday from the custom of recent converts wearing white clothing on that day, as Whitsuntide was one of two chief seasons for baptism, other than Easter. So the term Whitsunday could also be a reference to the outpouring of wisdom upon the Apostle said, oh, hence Wet Sunday, or Wit as in Wisdom Sunday. It may also be a derivation of the word Pentecost, morphing as Pinkston or Wingston, the German Pinkston, uh, and the uh, English Whitsun. The Germans have the Wurzenwurke, um, corresponding exactly to the Anglican Whitsun Week. It may even have a connection to the French word hote, meaning eight, because of the eight Sundays between Easter and Pentecost. And milk was formally given to the poor on this day to qualify themselves to receive the Holy Spirit, and the name may derive also from the old name for milk, white meat. That's all according to Biblical Encyclopedia. Um, why was the Holy Spirit sent down? The Holy Spirit was sent from God by Jesus, which the Lord promised in the upper room that he would send the comfort upon him to convict the world of sin. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt with regard to sin and unrighteousness and judgment. And he came to regenerate God's chosen people into new life. As John 3 says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit also came to reassure us of our salvation. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit came to teach us the truth. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you. 
but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So he came to lead us, as Romans 8.14 says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And he came to fill us with supernatural power. In Luke 24, verse 49, our Lord Jesus spoke of being clothed with power from on high. And to direct our prayer life, as we are told in Ephesians 6.18, to pray in the Spirit. And he came to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life, as Galatians 5 describes it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we learn that the Holy Spirit came to give gifts to every part of the body. And he came to empower us for worship, for God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. He certainly came to empower us for evangelism. Acts 1 verse 8, at the ascension, our Lord Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. He also came to call and direct us into ministries, as you read in Acts 13, that the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit came to glorify Jesus. John 16, 14, he will bring glory to me. You can always see it's the work of the Holy Spirit because what the Holy Spirit does is always to glorify Christ. Uh, Dr. Hammond, the celebration of Pentecost revolves heavily around the Holy Spirit. Why do Christians need to be reminded about the Holy Spirit and what is the significance of the Holy Spirit for Christians? He is the third person of the Trinity and that's why baptism is the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The disciple of Christ must learn and experience what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, to be led by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.14, to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.26, and to pray in the Spirit, Jude 20 and Romans 8.26. So these are actually commands to the to Christians. So for a Christian not to be Spirit-filled is actually a downright sin. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, then you're living in sin, because God commands us, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you just if you do not obey, you sin by neglect. Sin is not just sins of commission, what we do, but sins of omission, what we fail to do, or commands that we fail to obey. So by indifference to the word of God, or by apathy to his commands, by spiritual laziness and carelessness, by sluggish and lukewarm response to God's great command to be filled with the Spirit, the church has been filled by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. With sinful, half-hearted, lukewarm, semi-saved, half-saved, pseudo-saved, even unsaved, poor imitations of the real thing. Having said that, not only was the Holy Spirit revealed, uh, but um, if you just consider the day of Pentecost, fire, wind, and water. Three of the greatest natural forces in the world are fire, wind, and water. And these three forces reveal something of the power of the Creator. On the day of Pentecost, the fire of God... The wind of the Holy Spirit and the living waters of Jesus Christ moved in great power and the church was born on Pentecost. What is the connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to be the helper for his children. He comes to help us follow Jesus and to glorify God. So the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus are inextricably linked. That's why we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to show us Jesus, to keep our eyes on Jesus to lead us to follow Jesus in his steps and to glorify Jesus. Our Lord Jesus came to the world to set the world on fire. He wants people on fire for him, dedicated, fervent disciples conquering the world for Christ. To do this, he requires fully committed, totally surrendered, Holy Spirit-filled disciples who will walk in his bold footprints. 
It is not God's will that we have inconsistent Big Dipper experiences of being up today and down tomorrow. It's equally not God's will that his disciples follow and rely on their feelings and experiences. Because feelings change, but Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13.8 says. We read in Romans 8.9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Galatians 4.6 says, Because you are sons, God sent a spirit of a son into our hearts. The Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, or like Daddy, Father. In Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 4, we read, A voice cries out, Prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord. Clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley, level every mountain. The hills will become a plain. The rough country will become smooth. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The Lord himself has promised this. That's in Isaiah 40. Well, this passage is completely applied to when the Lord Jesus came to earth. So here's Yahweh. Prepare the Lord, the road for the Lord, for Yahweh. And our Lord Jesus came and John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness preparing the road for the Lord. Christianity without Christ's mighty Holy Spirit is dry and dull and it can be powerless and inept and ineffective. But Christianity in the power of the Holy Spirit is dynamic and fresh, spiritual and powerful, invincible, earth-shaking and history-making. If we have a dry spiritual life, if we have many downtimes, many valley experiences, if our walk seems rough and lacking in power and satisfaction, then there is good news. God not only commands, he enables us to obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to live in the glory of the Lord, to prepare the way for the Lord, to control your life. We need to prepare a way in our life. What distresses the Holy Spirit or what would be signs of a neglect of the Holy Spirit or a lack of the Holy Spirit? Yes, so we read in the Bible, Isaiah 63 verse 10, that they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became the enemy and he fought himself he fought against them so it's easy to sin against the holy spirit to grieve him the holy spirit is a person he's not just a force he's a person the third person of the trinity and the word of god warns us do not grieve the holy spirit ephesians 4 30 do not grieve the holy spirit of god with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption we also commanded do not quench the spirit 1 thessalonians 5 and 19 do not put out the holy spirit's fire we commanded in Acts 7.51 not to resist the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit, um, was quoted by Philip in Acts, uh, Stephen, by Stephen in Acts 7. Do not lie to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5 verse 3. Think of Anais and Sapphira. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men, but to God. The Apostle Peter rebuked him. So, Obviously, the Holy Spirit is more than a force. He is not just a spirit. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's part of the Godhead. And so we can grieve, quench, resist, and lie to the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's um, take a closer look at these ways of sinning against the Holy Spirit, these four ways that you just listed. What of our actions would grieve, um, in other words, distress or hurt the Holy Spirit? Right, this is all part of preparing the way for the Lord, that we fill every valley and bring every mountain low uh, to prepare a smooth way for the Lord in our life. So you can only grieve a person who loves us. To grieve means to cause sorrow to or hurt someone who loves us. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible reveals he is the spirit of life. So 
we grieve the Holy Spirit by spiritual lethargy and apathy and deadness. This grieves him. He is the spirit of truth. So anything false, hypocritical, or deceitful grieves him. He's a spirit of faith. And so unbelief and distrust and worry would grieve him. We're not to worry about anything, we to pray about everything. He is the spirit of power, love, and self-control. And so spiritual barrenness and fruitlessness and disorder would grieve him. He is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we read. So ignorance of the word of God and spiritual foolishness would grieve him. He is the spirit of holiness, and so anything unclean or indecent or immoral would defile and degrade us, and in this way it would grieve the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah 11, 2 speaks of the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so it's understandable that King David could pray in Psalm 51, verse 11, do not cast your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Mm. Well, the Holy Spirit must be very grieved <laughs> given the state of the world today. And the state of the church in particular, yes. Um, and the second sin uh, against the Holy Spirit that you listed was uh, quenching the Holy Spirit. What is meant by quenching the Holy Spirit and what um, examples can you give of quenching the Holy Spirit? Well, to quench the Spirit is to stifle or suppress his leading and his working. So to quench the Spirit means we hinder his will in the same way as you would quench a fire by pouring cold water over it. So after you finished having a fire maybe in a forest, you of course meant to quench the fire, you meant to get a bucket of water over it to make sure there's no embers or ashes that could kindle a forest fire. So that's a good thing when you quench a fire. But to quench the Holy Spirit's fire, when you think of revival fires, uh, that would be very negative. So the Holy Spirit's fire could be quenched by a mocking and frivolous attitude that prevents serious spiritual work being done. And often people are like that when they are resisting the work of God. You just think when David Wilkerson speaking about his ministry and the gangs of New York and the cross and the switchblade, and the response when he is trying to preach to them was a whole lot of the gangs would just be openly laughing and mocking. And particularly, as he said, the Debs, the girls in the gangs would be often mocking and um, laughing and scorning to make it difficult for anyone to listen to or respond positively. There's also spiritual coldness and apathy that quenches spiritual fervor and dampens enthusiasm. I mean, you've come across people who called like a wet blanket and... Uh, uh, people who you trying to talk about something, say, positive, and they just come up with some uh, comment that completely suppresses it. I mean, just think, for example, you can talk about something good and positive somebody's planning, and then somebody will say, well, that's not possible. Well, that's never going to happen. And yes, but uh, the government would never allow that or whatever. And uh, you can just see the whole um, conversation gets dampened by that kind of negative attitude. And so... You can also quench a fire by neglecting to provide fuel. And so if you're wanting a fire to go on through the night, you have to keep adding logs and coal onto the fire to keep it going. Well, to neglect to provide fuel in our spiritual lives, we can prevent the Holy Spirit from setting us and keeping us on fire. And our spiritual fuel is the Word of God and the power of prayer are essential if we're to be on fire for Jesus. And of course, there's also divisions in our fellowship can quench Holy Spirit, just as fire breaks hold forest fires. Now, fire breaks are very good on a mountain to have a fire break where they've cleared it of all vegetation. So if a fire is raging on a mountain, it's got to stop at that fire break. And uh, you want it to be wide enough so that the fire can't jump that, that gap. Well, that's good in stopping a destructive forest fire, but that's terrible when it's 
preventing a Holy Spirit move of the fires of revival in our fellowship. And if you've got uh, breaks in relationships between one group of people and another, of course, that would also quench the Holy Spirit too. Let's face it, there's one body, one Lord, one baptism, one Spirit. And there's meant to be the unity of the Spirit in a fellowship. And when you've got somebody who's undermining that, that, of course, can quench the work of the Holy Spirit in that congregational community. And the third sin against the Holy Spirit that you listed was resisting the Holy Spirit. How do we resist the Holy Spirit? When he convicts us of sin and we do not repent, that is resisting the Spirit. When he leads us to do something and we refuse to do it, that is resisting the Spirit. When he prepares us for something and we don't put it into action, that is resisting the Spirit. When he guides and we do not follow, that is resisting the Holy Spirit. Then the Lord said, My Spirit will not always contend with man forever. That's in Genesis 6 verse 3. And God's Holy Spirit is working in us, seeking to guide us, to lead us into all truth, to guide our steps. And it's an extraordinary thing when you're being led by the Spirit. And I'm thinking of some examples here. Uh, one is uh, David Wilkerson, for example, as a country preacher in, in upstate New York, was prompted to uh, go down to New York City and minister uh, to the street gangs and uh, how at each step he was just um, prompted. And some of the times, such as uh, he didn't know how to even get hold of the gangs, he stops, uh, is convinced to stop his car. He stops his car, gets out, and he asks the person, do you know where so-and-so lives? And the man says, well, you stopped right outside his uh, door. And, you know, extraordinary things like that. Uh, when I was in uh, Minnesota a while ago, there was a horrible uh, accident. A bridge collapsed. You know, the, the whole bridge, a long bridge across uh, this wide river, suddenly collapsed. And, um, you know, that that's quite distressing. That sort of thing's not meant to happen. A very advanced city. And uh, there's a um, ministry that I was invited to go to their working amongst the university students, Maranatha Ministries, and they've got a student house, which is actually just on the road right next to that bridge. And an amazing thing happened. They said, of course, when the bridge collapsed, they rushed outside and they were providing tea and drinks for people and helping folks who were uh, traumatized or in need and, uh, so, and some people who fell in the river and so on. Well, this, the word came out as they were there. There was a man driving his car, Christian, and he just felt while he's driving towards the bridge to stop his car now, stop the car right now. And he stopped his car. And, of course, people are hooting from behind and, and shouting at him and angry and swearing because he's blocking the way and they're rushing and they're wanting to get across the bridge. And he just stopped and he felt an absolute conviction from God not to go any further. And while he's there and people are shouting at him, the bridge collapses. Now, this one man on this one side prevented a lot of traffic going on the bridge. It would have been on the bridge at the time it collapsed. So, I mean, that's someone who is obviously with hindsight prompted by the Holy Spirit. Now, he couldn't have known at the time exactly, but time proved it. And so I learned all this testimony from the Maranatha people whose mission house was right there on that um, very, on the road, right at the corner, just before the bridge. And there are times in my life when I've known God has prompted and guided me to do key things, uh, which led to our ministry in Mozambique and Angola. Sudan and sometimes saved our lives when we just knew not to go down this road, not to do that and and when to stop, when to start, who to trust and so resisting the Holy Spirit, you can imagine if, if God convicts you to do something and you don't respond that's resisting the prompting and guidance of the Holy Spirit And the fourth sin against the Holy Spirit 
you listed was lying to the Holy Spirit. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, that is very disconcerting. The scriptures do not lie to the Spirit. Um, and of course, we know that's what Ananias and Sapphira did when they gave a false testimony in the church, pretending to be more generous than they were being. And they were told, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God, which is another proof text on the Holy Spirit being part of the Holy Trinity because the Holy Spirit is called God uh, on that and many other occasions. So when we pray and pretend that everything's all right while we've got unrepentant sin in our lives, that could be a way of lying to the Spirit too. When we commit ourselves to God's service or to his will but don't really mean it, we lie to the Spirit. I've been in quite a lot of service, and I remember it was much more common to do this in the 70s when I was converted, but at a youth camp and so on, asking all of you who have been called to missions or committing yourself to, to missions, you know, stand up and, oh my, the amount of people who stood, very impressive. But um, I know many of those people who did not make one single step towards the field. And, uh, uh, you know, it's quite a serious thing to make such a commitment publicly and then not to follow through. And uh, when we commit ourselves to the Lord's service or to his will, but don't really mean it, that's lying to the Spirit. When you give a word of testimony or prophecy in Jesus' name, but something or some working of the Holy Spirit and it isn't the truth, then that's lying to the Spirit. And I mean, how many times do we hear people saying in some of our more Pentecostal churches, Yea, verily, forsooth, behold, thus saith the Lord, last night the fullness of the Godhead bodily appeared to me, and God said to me, and I said to him, and he said to me, and I said to him. And they have a very imaginative series of things. But, you know, honestly, um, when you look at the fruits of, of what comes out of this, Often you've got a question, was this God or was this a person's imagination? And sometimes what might have been more appropriate for the person to say, I think or I strongly feel, or when I was reading in this devotional book today I read, you know, that might be more honest, but when you say, stand up and say, God gave me this word, and you, yea, verily, forsooth, behold, and in King James the English, um, quote something, I think there is a real tendency of people to exaggerate, which is seriously bad. And more seriously, to attribute a direct prophecy to God or to the Holy Spirit that is not um, that it wasn't given by him. And I can think of some other examples, like men who've gone up to women saying, God's told me you're going to be my wife, or uh, God's told me that uh, you should marry me. And uh, the best answer I've heard to that uh, from a woman is, well, funny, when I was talking to the Lord earlier today, he didn't mention it, <laughs> or didn't mention you. Um, and uh, the... the the idea that the Lord's going to guide you as to what someone else is meant to do. There's been people who've come along and said to missionaries, uh, God told me he wants to give you a better car. You to give me your car and he'll give you a better car. And this missionary said, I'm happy with the old car I've got. Uh, may you get the new car. And, uh, you know, just the presumption um, that God said to me, and you must do this and the other, and you've got to give me this sum of money or whatever. There's a lot of presumption, and I've got to say it's worse than exaggeration presumption. It's actually lying to the Holy Spirit. It's claiming that God's given you a message to give, which is actually something you've either fabricated, thought up, or adapted from something you read somewhere. So now that we know what offends the Holy Spirit, how can we please the Holy Spirit? That seems a bit harder. <laughs> so obviously, we, on a negative side, we shouldn't quench, resist, grieve, or lie to the Holy Spirit, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit. Luke 24, verse 49, the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So 
the Lord promised the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's commanded us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be filled with wine, uh, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the full meaning of the words be filled is brought out by studying the grammatical tense of the original Greek, which is in the imperative tense. It is a command, not an option. You must be filled. It's in a plural sense. It's not just a command to one individual. It's a plural. All of us must be filled or all of you must be filled. It's a general command. It's in the present tense. It's a command for the present. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit now. But it's also in a passive mood. That is to say, it's something that we cannot do ourselves. But we must let God fill us, just like I am carried. You can't carry yourself. Uh, and I am filled in this sense. It's also in a passive mood. Uh, you must let yourself be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in a present continuous tense. You must be continuously filled. You must go on being filled. You, this isn't just a once Yes, I remember I was filled with the Holy Spirit back in 1978. And no, that's that's not um, what it's talking about. It's not just some once, uh, never to be repeated events. It's it's meant to be a present continuous tense. In other words, we are all being clearly commanded to let ourselves be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word filled indicates you must be under the influence of, to the extent of being dominated by or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Like you can say, you know, he's full of liquor and he's just carrying on like an idiot and rambling and raging and uh, doing things he would normally do when he's sober. So he's controlled by the liquor. Well, don't be filled, do not be drunk with wine, in which is excess, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are, this doesn't mean we've got to be disorderly, quite the opposite, because the Holy Spirit is a God of order. He's a spirit of, of uh, power and of sound mind. The Spirit has given us life, he must also control our lives. So when you speak about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's being, speaking about being controlled by the Spirit. Uh, to be under his influence. And how are we to be dominated and to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Is it beyond our control, a case of God's grace, or can we actively encourage the Holy Spirit to fill us? Well, there are some spiritual principles and laws one can follow to help. So what we surrender to God, God accepts. What God accepts, he cleanses. What God cleanses, he fills, and what he fills, he uses. So Jesus proclaimed, whoever is thirsty should come unto me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of life-giving water will pour out from his heart. Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, which those who believed in him were going to receive. And he said this on the last and great day of the feast. And so the Lord is saying, um, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to continuously come to Christ in faith. And Jesus said in John 15 verse 7, if you remain in me or abide in me, and my words remain or abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Andrew Murray wrote a, very, a book on this, Abide in Christ. So to be filled with the Spirit, we need to thirst. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. We need to come to Jesus. In fact, only Jesus can satisfy our thirst, and it's he alone who can fill us with his Holy Spirit. There's no church, there's no pastor, there's no ministry, there's no apostle that can fill you with the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can. And we need to drink. We need to receive the Spirit. A step of faith is required. But it's easy to drink. I mean, even a baby knows how to drink. And we must believe. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit when our hunger and thirst leads us to Jesus. And by faith we receive the fullness of the Spirit through surrender to Him. If you then 
Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who love him and ask him? So Luke eleven thirteen makes it clear that you've got to ask like a child trusting. So as we accept, believe, and submit to the word of God, we simultaneously receive cleansing from the word of God and the infilling of faith, which leads to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The more we're filled with the word of God, the more we're under the influence of the Bible, under the control of the Bible, the more we're filled with the Holy Spirit, coming more and more under his influence and control. So this is both a process and a crisis. You're responsible for the process of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit by continually receiving and applying God's word, like Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, which bring forth its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. So thinking how a tree puts down its roots deep into the ground to absorb the moisture from the river coming past. So we need to put down our roots deep into the word of God. And from the word of God, the spirit of God will fill us. The more we are filled with the word of God, the more we will be filled with the spirit of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, by the washing of the word. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes from opening ourselves up to the word of God and concentrating on and believing and understanding what you're reading. So this could be called the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. When you're faithful to the process of being filled with the word of God, God's Holy Spirit will time and again overflow from within you. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit in some senses is, is being overflowing the word of God, as you're praying through the Psalms, as you sing the great hymns of the faith in the Psalms, you'll find the word of God is filling you and the Holy Spirit will cleanse and wash you through that and um, take control of you through as you submit to the word of God. If you abide in me and if my word abides in you, you can ask what you wish and will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So John 15 shows us how we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as John, uh, as Andrew Murray put in his book, Abide in Christ, you know, speaking about the vine. You know, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. If we abide in him, we will bear much fruit through the fullness of the Holy Spirit. How does one know when, when oneself or another person is filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the fruit of the Spirit. To be filled with God's Spirit, to be filled with the nature of God, which is to be filled with Christ. And that's why you read about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Christ, which is all the same. It's to be filled with love, wisdom, and knowledge. These are synonymous and inseparable. To be filled with God's power is to be filled with his love and knowledge and wisdom. And the power of that love and wisdom of Christ's Holy Spirit shows itself in dynamic action that moves the world back to God. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts we read on the first day of Pentecost. And they went out and they proclaimed God's word with boldness. So that's one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit is action. You can see, for example, whether you're reading about Brother Andrew being guarded to do Bible smuggling behind the Iron Curtain, or how David Wilkinson was guarded to go into the uh, ganglands of New York City uh, with the Cross and Swift Parade example, or the way David Livingston was led in the field, or William Carey to India. Uh, one of the marks of the Holy Spirit's filling is action. A person is changed, and you can see the fruit of the Spirit following the fruit or evidences of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is seen in any life that surrendered to God and thirsty for its word. It's real love, overflowing joy, deep peace of mind and heart, exceptional patience, 
real kindness, true goodness, invincible faithfulness, genuine humility, and great self-control. And Jesus said, you will know man by his fruit. You just have to read about changed lives. You suddenly see, like, uh, again, the cross and switchblade just being an example of um, uh, gang members who had been stealing and now they're doing restitution. Uh, people who are involved in knifing others now coming forward and confessing to police. I was involved in this knifing and turned themselves in. Uh, people returning what they'd stolen. Drunkards becoming sober. People who'd been drug addicts no longer uh, going back to the drugs. So changed lives. People who used to live by crime now getting a job and working and uh, helping society instead of being a drain on it and parasites who attack. The Spirit shows his presence through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So love is seen through actions. And these actions are the type that make an impact and which change our world and accomplish God's will. A Christian filled with God's word is filled with faith and love and power. Such a Christian is able to be directed and guided by God into his perfect will to accomplish his mighty purposes. Such a believer is filled with God's word, finds that as he prays sincerely from the heart, according to the scriptures, cherished in his mind, he has a vital contact with and union with Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. John fifteen seven. So abiding in Christ is the key aspect and having Christ's words abide in us. As the will of God as revealed in the scriptures and the desires of the Christian as transformed by the scriptures meet and harmonize together they make a combined contact with God's power and his prayer answering power and God's purposes are accomplished not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6 This is actually spiritual dynamite. It's spiritual nitroglycerin. This is praying in the spirit. It releases the mighty power of God that is needed to transform our lives and change our world and starts with getting into the Word of God until the Word of God gets into you. What about the supernatural powers associated with the Holy Spirit as seen in Pentecost, as described in the book of Acts? Will ordinary Christians also acquire such powers or any powers? And if so, what are they to do with those powers? Well, there's no limit to what God can do in and with and through you if he is not quenched. No limit. Now, it's it should be added you cannot expect the same status or authority as the apostles of the first century. That That is um, unprecedented. You may have your prayers for healing answered. That doesn't mean that he's given you the gift of healing. He, he may give you some great faith. That doesn't mean you've necessarily got the gift of faith, You, but we all come on to have faith. You might have the gift of hospitality, but every Christian is commanded to be hospitable. Uh, so some people may have a greater gift in it, but... While nobody today is going to be a prophet in the sense of having the power and authority to create scripture, uh, and nobody's going to be actually a healer, but God may use us at different times in praying for the healing of others uh, or to lead someone to Christ. Obviously, the power is not of us. We are the clay pots. So it was said of the Christians of the first century, they turned the world upside down. And that's exactly what true Christianity in the power of the Holy Spirit always accomplishes. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice the incredible impact that the Christian lifestyle and message had on the Roman Empire. Wherever the gospel was proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, there was either a revival or a riot. There was no apathy. Indifference was impossible to such a radical message, such an invincible power. So the question we should ask is, are you dissatisfied with your present spiritual experience? I'm sure many are frustrated by the inroads the world, the flesh have made into the church, and 
many of our listeners probably long to see Christians making a greater impact in society. Is it a burden of your heart that the evangelization and discipleship of the whole world in this generation becomes a reality? Well, the Word of God assures us that if you determine to stop quenching the Spirit and stop resisting the Spirit, if you humble yourself and pray and seek His face and turn from your wicked ways, then God will hear you from heaven. He'll forgive your sin and He'll heal your land. If we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness with a thirsty heart, then as we ask and seek and knock, God promises to fill us with supernatural power from above and vibrant spiritual vitality in life. God actually promises. He assures us. He stakes the honor of his name on these promises, stating if we fulfill the simple conditions, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Hunger and blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He will be filled. And so what we sow is what we will reap. He will work miracles and endure with power from on high if we humble ourselves before him and abide in him and let his words abide in us. You alluded earlier to missionary work when you asked listeners, do you long to see Christians making a greater impact on society? As a missionary, particularly as a soldier missionary, having worked in war zones and persecuted regions where Christians are persecuted, can you explain the special significance that Pentecost has for missions and missionaries? Yes, uh, Pentecost and the Great Commission are inextricably linked. Pentecost celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit to the early Christians so that we can rejoice in their strength and the inspiration to go out and convert the world to Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born, and so was world missions. And notice, as they received the power of the Holy Spirit, they were enabled to preach in many tongues, and many, many languages that were present in Jerusalem at that time were able to hear the gospel in their language. So Pentecost obviously had missionary significance from the very beginning, and 3,000 were converted that day, and representatives from all different nations throughout the Middle East, uh, throughout the Mediterranean world. So Pentecost and missions cannot be separated, just like the Ascension and the Great Commission cannot be separated. They go together. Firstly, we need dedicated Christians, disciples, wholeheartedly committed to Christ if we want to win this world back to Christ, turn the world upside down or right side up back to God. We need to have Christians who are freed from the chains of sin and selfishness and worldliness. We need Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need these Christians to be able to be led by the Holy Spirit, to do and to say the right things at the right time to the right people in the right places. God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. We need Christians led by the Holy Spirit, just like God led Brother Andrew or um, Richard Vaughan or um, David Wilkinson out of their comfort zone into areas where they could make an impact, George Verver, Bill Bathman, many examples of believers who've who've been bold and brave and stepping out into mission fields, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we need Christians who will pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need Christians who are filled with the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, and those who pray in the Spirit. A God acts in answer to prayer. If we do not pray, pray, then we cannot expect God to act. Prayer releases the power of God. The only foundation for spiritual work is prayer. Prayer is our priority. A prayerful life is always a powerful life. A prayerless life is always a powerless life. When we pray in the Holy Spirit, then we are releasing the greatest power in the universe. The church needs Christians who will pray in the Spirit. Fourthly, we need Christians endued with supernatural power to win the spiritual world war raging today. There are far too many of our friends and family members and churches that are being undermined, chained and crippled by the force of evil. The time has come to rise up and go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and annihilate wickedness and worldliness. We must set the prisoners free. 
We must win the victory. We must win our world for Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we can, we must, we will prevail. Even the demons must obey us when we give them a command in Jesus' name. That is because as we place ourselves in submission to the power of God, then we're able to resist the lesser power of the enemy. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Greater is he who is in us and him who is in the world. The church of Jesus Christ needs dedicated Christians, Christ-centered, Bible-based, prayerful Christians, endued with God's supernatural power in order to win the spiritual world war and turn people back to God. The evangelist John Wesley said, Give me 100 men who love God with all their hearts and who fear no one but God and who hate nothing but sin, and I will change the world. So we need Christians who will love God with all their hearts, Christians who will fear no one but God, Christians who will hate sin, and who will make an impact on their world. And so we need to ask each one, do you know what it is to have the fire of God's word burn within you? Do you know what it's like to have the wind of the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you? Do the living waters of Christ flow from your heart? Powerful living, powerful guidance, powerful prayer, powerful missions. Your world needs this power, and your church needs this power, you need this power. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Dr. Hammond, where can listeners find out more inf about Pentecost Sunday and the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, um, I've written a book, The Power of Prayer Handbook. The Power of Prayer Handbook has a lot on this. Also the book, The Southship Handbook, which is also an Afghan's Disciples Cup, a practice Disciples Cup, and those available from Christian Liberty Books. In the Power of Prayer Handbook and uh, the Practical Discipleship, you'll see all the scriptures and, and uh, quotes that we've given in these, this uh, radio program today uh, available. So Practical Discipleship and the Power of Prayer Handbook available from ChristianLibertyBooks.co.za. Um, we have a great commission course uh, that's done every year in January, uh, which aims to help people to be more effective in missions. So those are all helpful resources. Also, if you're wanting Bible studies, such as on Pentecost or Ascension and these other key times, uh, if you go onto the livingstonfellowship.co.za website, www.livingstonfellowship.co.za, you'll see audios and some videos of Bible studies, including of these presentations, and uh, you'll find summaries of every book in the Bible. Uh, under our Bible survey. Thank you very much, Dr. Hammond, for the salutary wisdom and uh, reminder of the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, in closing, I'd like to read from 1, Je 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is him who is in us than him who is in the world. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Front Line. God bless and good night. <laughs>